Welcome to International Tax Bites, a series of conversations around issues and concepts in international taxation. I'm Graham Jackson, and I'm a Gibraltar and English solicitor with Hassan's international law firm in Gibraltar. Today, I will be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who is a Jersey advocate and English barrister with Old Square Tax Chambers in London. So, Harriet, here we are for the last episode of Series 4, Episode 6, which is quite shocking that we've got this far, um, but we have. So, but before we go, we dive in, we have a competition, don't we, Harriet? We have indeed got a competition. So, International Tax Bites now has merch. We have merch. Um, <laughs> the merch being a highly, a very high quality International Tax Bites mug. Um, which are not available in all good mug stores, are only available as a result of this this competition. And we will be giving two of these away. We agreed one, but we're going to do two, Harry. I think two is... is, Yeah, that seems fair. ...more equitable for our our listenership. You are assuming that anyone is going to write in, Graham. I'm sure they are. They are a loyal group of people. Um, Hopefully they will write, write in from easy posting distance of Lincolnshire and Gibraltar. But, you know, if we get it, I, I would encourage our listeners in Nepal and Mauritius to write in just to see if we can test the quality of the postal service uh, to these countries. Mug to Nepal. So um, we have a question, don't we, Harriet? What's we the question think... these good people have got to answer? So answers on the back of the postcard, as it were. The question is... What does the acronym OECD stand for? Or more grammatically, for what does the acronym OECD stand? Right. So that was Harriet's best BBC announcer voice. (laughs) The question is, what do the letters OECD stand for? And can you please, not on a postcard, uh, because you don't have our postal address, but uh, can you please email internationaltaxbytes at gmail.com? We await the flood of entries. Um, and we will pick the name out of a hat, metaphorically, probably, uh, but at random, select a winner from the uh, tens or possibly singles of entries that we receive. <laughs> and we will send uh, your mug by the po- by post. And then you could send us a photograph of you with your mug. That would be very nice. And we can put it on our LinkedIn page. Um, and uh, so there you go. That's audience participation for you. Yes, and if you are writing in in the hope of winning a mug, do let us know if there are any topics you would like us to cover in Series 5. Excellent. That would be great, because um, we're on, what, episode 27 now? I never thought we had 27 things to talk about. Graham, you know I've got loads more. I've got so many more that we can yeah, talk you, about. There is, there is this list, isn't there? <laughs> um, that yeah, sits that we, do out spend, there. we do spend quite a lot of time looking at the list going, mm, those all look really dull. Yeah. Well, they never are when we talk about them. Well, apart I hope from, they're not anyway. Apart from the statutory residence test. And what was the other one I really didn't want to do? Income and capital. Yeah. And in- international Recon- tr- recognition of trust is not a gripper. Um, oh, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's performed well anyway on the on the uh, <laughs> on the um, on the the, the the figures. Anyway, so 
What are we talking about today, Harriet? Today, we are going to be talking about transfer pricing. Okay. So, people use this phrase, um, transfer pricing, without... It's sort of... The words don't really hold any meaning in them. They're a, they're a piece of jargon, in a sense, aren't they? Uh, yes, it's certainly, it's certainly a phrase with a technical rather than a general meaning, I think it would be fair to, to yeah. say. So... Um, shall we go through a little bit of history as to how we arrived at this problem that transfer pricing is and the transfer pricing rules are designed to, uh, to resolve? Um, so <clears throat> it goes back to um, the early, well, the first quarter of the 20th century, right? Uh, yes, it does. So what, what we're looking at is a way, uh, I think you refer to it as an international tax mechanism, and sort of in the interwar period, prior to the prior to um, 1927, there wasn't anything very much that dealt with uh, what would be called an international tax mechanism. Yeah, so the British Empire, as it was, had its own system um, of different types of taxation that interacted in such a way as to basically eliminate double taxation the german states which came together to make up the um the german empire in 1871 they'd entered into double taxation treaties of a type um, before 1871 when they were part of a customs union and um those treaties were designed to eliminate double taxation which was a barrier to international trade and obviously, post First World War, international trade was really, really important because um, <laughs> everything was in bits. Uh, after yeah, the, historically, was there a bit of an economic problem caused by the First World War? There was a slight economic problem <laughs> caused by the First World War and then a massive pandemic that came straight after and killed more people than the war itself. So the, we think we've got things bad now. Uh, they, they were quite bad after the First World War and it took maybe... I think probably about 40 years to really unwind itself when you throw in the Second World War as well. So, um, but they had the, the, the International Chamber of Commerce and the League of Nations uh, basically realised that they needed to encourage international trade. So they encouraged countries to enter into double taxation treaties to facilitate that international trade. And that then, as a consequence of that, increased the number of um, multinational groups because so it worked it worked right but it it led to this creation this um, proliferation if not the original creation of multinational groups I'm sure that it existed before but um, if you think about the case that we talked about when we were talking about um, tax residents the De Beers control management and control case if you think about that structure they're litigating in that, which is of a board of directors in London and a South African registered entity, and where is it tax resident? That just wouldn't happen now. You'd just have parents and subsidiary, one in London, one in... Of course, to eliminate the issue. To eliminate the issue. Yeah. That was um, facilitated by the existence of double taxation treaties, just, I think. Just, just to pause there, I think this history is actually really interesting because I don't 
I, I, I think, Graham, from your perspective, working in Gibraltar, you will probably have dealt with this as well. Jersey, until relatively recently, I think it's, it came into force in 2019, had uh, what I always refer to as an old style double tax treaty, not one based on the current OECD model, because it was from 1953. And that was very heavily focused on corporates as opposed to individuals. And that was much the much more important aspect of it, which sort of falls in line with the uh, fact that this was done to promote enterprise. Yeah, and coupled with that, it just wasn't very easy to move around like it is now. I mean, I well, don't yeah. know how, how many flights there are from Jersey to London, but I know there's a lot. There's never one when you need one. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, but, the, but, but the point is people are just are more mobile, so the, the personal uh, aspect is, is more relevant to the treaty. But I think it does show us, I mean, yes, they were focusing on business. They weren't focusing on individuals. Um, and I think that that then helped facilitate this, this idea of uh, multinational groups. So we've got, historically, we've got a position where multinational groups have been, have happened. And then added to that, we have a, a legal position, which all English um, qualified lawyers, there's a sentence that everybody has heard, right? Consideration must be sufficient, not adequate. So it's okay, or it's not illegal, not in any way ineffective, not illegal is not the right word, not in any way ineffective to do a transaction for a price which is not a fair price. Unless there's something else sitting behind it. The contract is formed on basic principles. Yes, and uh, yes, and it's um, it's a it, it's a trite principle of law that, provided that consideration is not de minimis, you can pay whatever you want. Yeah, so you're not obliged to do a good deal; you're just obliged to do an effective deal. Yes, exactly. So, for anyone who isn't from a common law tradition, or possibly I I, I don't know. I know Jersey has co's as opposed to consideration, but consideration is this idea that for a contract to be formed, there has to be something going both ways. Yeah, some movement in both directions, right? So, so if you couple the idea of multinational enterprises and the idea that a contract can be effective without the proper price bit, the proper in inverted commas price being paid. And then you tell your team in finance that they can just make up what they can just charge whatever price they want between different parts of the group. Then it's very tempting to charge higher prices in low tax jurisdictions when they deal with high tax jurisdictions to shift profit from the high tax jurisdiction to the low tax jurisdiction. Exactly. So we don't need to we don't need to settle the debate of whether that's mitigation or avoidance because the OECD has effectively settled that for us. Yeah. So let's think of a scenario. And Harriet and I, for once, have actually got a set of slides in front of us that we're following. <laughs> so if this if this podcast appears structured, it's because it is in a way that we normally are not. Um, I think our rusticism is charming, generally yeah, speaking. People like the free flow of discourse between us. Um, <clears throat> But we have a slide in front of us that has a, a, a classic three structure, a three company uh, structure, a holding company in an unspecified jurisdiction, a uh, 
a an operations company in a country that taxes at 26.5% and uh, another company, which is its sister, in a zero tax jurisdiction. Now, how would this problem that we've got be utilised? So let's imagine our, our operating company says to the company in the zero tax jurisdiction, I'd like you to send me somebody to work one day a year uh, to help me. And the company in the zero tax jurisdiction says, of course, uh, I will charge you 100 million pounds for that. Thank you very much. And the operating company says, oh, well, you know, it just needs to be a, an effective contract. So fine, I'll pay you one, my 100 million pounds for that one day a year and uh, save myself or save the group, not myself, but save the group uh, 26 and a half million pounds <laughs> because I have an increased deduction against my profits. Hurrah. Um, a job yeah, that feels for. quite tax avoidancy. You can see why why the OECD would not want people to be able to do that. Exactly. So, but that's a, a, an extreme, very extreme example of an overcharging by a low tax jurisdiction company to a high tax jurisdiction company in the same group. That is the problem that this is that these rules called the transfer pricing rules are aimed at. Is it not, Harriet? It, it is, yes. And indeed, without the transfer pricing rules, you would have a huge issue. Because people would just do that. Yeah. And then why not? I mean, they have a duty to their shareholders, some might say. They do. So establish a basic principle here, uh, Harriet. What's the, the transfer pricing rules are a set of guidelines that follow from a basic principle. What is the yes. basic principle? So the basic principle sounds very simple, but the, uh, the transfer pricing guidelines run to 658 pages. There was a new, new version of them uh, published this year, and that runs to 658 pages. So turns out it wasn't as simple as they thought. But the principle that we're talking about is something called the arm's length principle. And you find this in Article 9.1 of the OECD model double tax treaty. And it tells us that where conditions are made or imposed between the two associated enterprises in their commercial or financial relations, which differ from those which would be made between independent enterprises, then any profits which would, but for these conditions, have accrued to one of the enterprises, but by reason of those conditions have not so accrued, may be included in the profits of that enterprise and taxed accordingly. So, there's quite a lot in there, isn't there? There is. Um, so we have to have two associated enterprises and for the sake of uh, brevity, we'll just say that's they're connected by control or ownership um, or acting to, in unison, right? Yes, that's that's a, that's a reasonable summary. A reason that's so damned by fake praise. <laughs> um, okay, Sorry. so that. They have a connection, but we could spend the whole episode talking just about that, couldn't we? So um, oh, and 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 then some. Um, so they're connected, and uh, they that there is a the, the arrangement between them is such that one either makes more profit, or sorry, one either charges more, or another is charged less in such a way as to move profit between them artificially. Exactly. So, and yeah, I mean, at its most basic, the arm's length principle does exactly what it says on the tin. It says where you are not dealing at arm's length, you will be treated 
as dealing at arm's length um, so that the tax works out properly. And the way that's resolved by the tax authorities is they look at what you've done and if you've done something artificial, they will just simply write extra stuff onto your tax return or deduct extra stuff, however it, it, it comes out. That way. However, yeah, however it's going to yeah, fall out. Yeah. Because, and the reason I keep saying both ways is because undercharging can be as much profit shifting as overcharging if it's going in the right direction. Yes, of course it can, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, right, so that's the arms length principle. That's it, job done, let's all go home. Great, happy <laughs> We've day. sorted it, right? So basically, don't overcharge or undercharge, or charge the right price between uh, connected parties. Yeah? Or don't, but you're not going to get a tax break because of it. Yeah, exactly. The next question then always arises whenever I have this conversation where I talk about the arms length principle. Well, what does that mean? What's the right price? How, or even for the more sophisticated amongst the clients, how do I work out what the right price is? <laughs> Which is actually the answer that you get in the TP, in the transfer pricing guidelines, isn't it? You don't get... Uh, it is, yes. We may as well go through what the process is. Do you think? Yes, let's do that. So the first step um, is, is basically to work out what's being charged for. Is it not? That's what's called the functional analysis. Yes. Um, and a functional anal analysis is um, needs to take into account all the risks, assets, the things that are involved in providing the service actually delineate what goes into the into the services that are provided and must also not only take into account what is being done, but must also take into account the general economic circumstances at the time. Uh, and the business strategy of the seller. And I think this is this is quite important because if you. If you go to a this is how I explain this, if you go to a connected party who normally makes cars and ask them to sell you widgets, it will cost them more to do the job than a man who sells widgets every day they'll have to retool it's just a different part it's not part of their strategy they're going to deviate from their normal behavior uh, so you can't just simply look at the price of widgets you have to understand the context of what's happening and uh, that's very important because the arm's length principle is an objective principle but it is grounded in the situation that the business applying it finds itself in right so it's, okay. it's, it's not completely objective it doesn't say there is an objective price for this type of transaction it says what should you two what should you two have been paying as between each other in all of the circumstances as they are yes um, yeah so what you will never find i i i did a I, so using this these slides i did a talk today and we went through uh went through one of the the methods that we'll talk about in a minute and uh one of the guys in the room said that doesn't contain anything it doesn't tell me how much to charge which he's right. Uh, it just sets another set. The, the methods really just in, a, in one sense set another set of problems that you have to solve. Well, um, it, it, it does, but you know, I mean, this is the problem with a lot of tests in taxation. It's it's hard to develop a coherent test that isn't a straitjacket, so that people just simply go around the straitjacket. Yeah. So. In order to answer the question, how do I work out what the correct price is, 
the OECD, let's not use its full name, don't give the answer away. Um, the OECD has uh, issued, I think the first set of guidelines was 1995. I may be wrong in that. No, you're correct. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the first set of guidance was in 1995, and it's been revising that. And as Harriet said, the latest one was this year or last year? This year, 22. This year. This year. Um, so the OECD has its, its set of rules that work with its model treaty. The US has, of course, <laughs> its own set of rules. I find that hard to believe. How close are they? I mean, I don't really know the US rules very much. How close are they? I couldn't say off the top of my head. I would have to do a comparative analysis, just like you do when you're dealing with transfer pricing. Nicely done, Harry. I see the way you did that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, China has its own set of rules as well. Um, and I, and I, don't, I know literally nothing about those. Uh, so as a result of our lack of knowledge of the other two sets, we're going to focus on the OECD. Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. <laughs> Seems as it covers most of the world. Now, generally, yes. generally, most jurisdictions, I don't know about Jersey, but I know Gibraltar does, and I think they, they're in some sense imported into the UK, aren't they? Um, they are. I'm just, I'm just trying to look, look it up now, where, exactly where they are. I'm fairly but, sure I know. But most jurisdictions in the world, I can think of one example that I'm not going to mention, um, what, most jurisdictions in the world have in some way imported the OECD TP guidelines into their law. In Gibraltar, what we've done is we've said, we have a general anti-abuse anti rule. If you want to learn about them, you can go back to the earlier episode where we discussed them. Um, and we've said that it, in that it says anything that's artificial or fictitious can be ignored by the Commissioner of Income Tax. And the measure of what is artificial and fictitious is in accordance with the transfer pricing guidelines. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. The English ones are in part four of TAPA. Right, okay. Implementation of these rules, uh, the UK, UK implementation of these rules. UK implementation. UK yeah. implementation of these rules is, is in, what do you say, part four? Part four of TOPA, Taxation, International and Other Provisions Act 2010. So anyway, those guidelines establish a set of methods by which you can work out the arm's length price. Do they not? They do, yes. And they are, there are five that are permitted um, and they are divided into two types. The first type being the traditional transaction methods, which are nice and grounded in reality. And the transactional profit methods, which are a little more art than science in some senses. But are still permitted and are, you still have to find comparables to... Uh, Comparison to is, is the essence of the transfer pricing rule, really. Yeah. In essence, you need to go and look somewhere and find something which is an arm's length version of what you're doing. And that should indicate the price that you should be charging, or at least the method by which you calculate the price. Yes. So... The five methods are, the three uh, tra traditional transaction methods are comparable uncontrolled price method, resale price method, or the cost plus method. And should we deal with those three first? Yes, why don't we do that? 
So I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about the comparable uncontrolled price methods, Harriet, because it's very simple and I understand it. Oh, good. <laughs> Why aren't I talking about that one then? <laughs> very simple. So there are, I've got a few quotes which I've lifted from the TP guidelines, which I think probably sum up each one of the, one of the versions that we've, methods that we're going to talk about and the comparable uncontrolled price method is described in the transfer pricing guidelines as um, it compares the price charged for property or services transferred in a controlled transaction to the price charged for property or services transferred in a comparable uncontrolled transaction in comparable circumstances which is a lot of words for saying go and ask what somebody else charges for this well, yes, and that, that, that might be what one would naively think a transfer, uh, sorry, an arm's length principle was. Yeah. So if you sell oranges and you're going to sell oranges to your connected enterprise, you pop down to the greengrocer and see what he's charging by the pound for a similar amount that you intend to sell. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the OECD's favourite method because it is both A, simple to explain, easy to understand and actually quite easy to do if you can find a comparable. But finding I mean, a comparable is not always easy, is it? No, it isn't. And what is interesting here, and I'm going to draw what seems at first blush quite an odd analogy, but you get a similar problem quite often in inheritance tax valuations. Okay. So you, if you look at what something is worth, you look at what, what it would fetch on the open market. And the problem that arises is that some things, there just isn't a market for that doesn't, but that doesn't mean that they are valueless. It just means that it's very hard to find a comparable. So you do get, uh, I, well, it's not really an analogy. You get the exact same issue by reference to um, the inheritance tax legislation where you say, what comparison am I making? And that's been left in, in domestic law to the courts to resolve. But we So there isn't a 65, 658 page guidance note? Not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> um, could you apply TP principles to that? Would the court be influenced? Well, if I get a case, I'll certainly remember that possibility. <laughs> I mean, it seems yeah, that we have a we have a set of guidelines that are internationally expected on how uh, accepted on how to work out a price you don't know. Yeah, I mean it, it's got to be worth a punt. <laughs> it has, doesn't it? Right. So if you are in trouble with your inheritance tax asset value calculations, give Harry a call. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, do anyway, but yes, quite. Yes, anyway, right. So, um, so that's the comparable uncontrolled price method, or COP, which is nice. I like that um, that acronym. And uh, it is the most accurate method and the preferred method of the OECD. The second method, Harriet, would you like to take this one? I would be delighted to talk about the resale price method. And the fact that my face looks like this should not in any way suggest to you that there is no delight in dealing with the resale price method. So the resale price method, and this is another quote from the guidelines, begins with the price at which a product that has been purchased from an associated enterprise is resold to an independent enterprise. This price, referred to as the resale price, is then reduced by the appropriate gross margin on this price, the resale price margin, 
representing the amount out of which the reseller would seek to cover its selling and other operating expenses, and in the light of the functions performed, taking into account the assets and risk assumed, make an appropriate profit. Now, I haven't quite finished the quote, but I'm just going to stop there because appropriate is one of these words that it, it's sort of it's a Teflon word, isn't it? It coats everybody's involved backside and something non-stick so that they can't ever get into trouble. What is appropriate? It's a bit like what is fair. It means different things to different people. And I would say an appropriate profit is almost an oxymoron because as much profit as is humanly possible is generally usually what most people in relation to them would consider appropriate. Whereas of course, if they are purchasing something from somebody, the appropriate profit would be much less. So it's not in and of itself a simple position. And the use of the word appropriate there is I think a bit of a cop-out, but anyway, to continue. So what you have is you start with um, a price, and that is the price that um, on which it would be resold to an independent enterprise. That's the resale price. And you then reduce that by a gross margin representing sort of the costs of reselling it effectively. Um, and then when you've done that, what you've got left after subtracting that margin, uh, that is regarded as an arm's length price for the original transfer of property between the associated enterprises. So I've made that as clear as mud, as mud by stopping. So sh should, should we break it down into a scenario that people can see? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. So Harriet is connected to me sufficiently for to be an associated enterprise. Harriet sells me something. And I sell that I then resell that to an unconnected person. So Harriet sells me something. We don't know what that should be priced at. And I then resell the thing to a third party who is entirely unconnected to me. That, get, that resale by me to an unconnected third party gives us a sort of starting point for the whole position because we have a, an art, we have a, a third party transaction going on there. Exactly. We can stick a pin in that price and say, this is where we start. Yeah. Then we work out how much I should expect to make and what my costs are and all the things and add it up what are appropriate, which uh, Harriet explained she doesn't like, but I would like to say reasonable uh, business would make in that position. Probably another word that Harriet's don't, yeah, don't you think about. that a reasonable business would make as much profit as it humanly possibly could? It would make a, a market standard profit. That's not necessarily reasonable. Well, I suppose okay, maybe it is fine. because it's the profit that the market will bear. Okay, I can accept yeah, Okay, that. right. So it makes a market standard profit and it has all its costs. You, you work out what that is, costs plus market standard profit, and you deduct that from the price that I've charged to the third party. And what you have left is what Harriet should charge me. Yes. 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 So we start, we start from a fixed point, which is the arm's length price to the third party, and then we work backwards by deducting my element of it. Exactly. And this is obviously useful where you're in a resale position, so for distributors, um, and where you've got goods and services from part of a group which are um, put together with 
similar from other parts of the group. Yeah. So if you if I'm buying from ten different comp- companies within the group and I'm bundling it together to make a to make some sort of unified product or service that I'm passing out, then this works well there. Exactly. So that's we're nearly halfway through. I mean, we're saving the two long ones to the end, but we are nearly halfway through. <laughs> so <clears throat> the cost plus method. So I sit, in, I sit in rooms with people, and I do love it. I sit in rooms with people when, and the, 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 the topic of transfer pricing comes up and you basically say, like, well, how much are we going to charge between these connected parties to start the conversation? And somebody will always pipe up, go, oh, we'll do cost plus, cost plus. We'll go with cost plus, right? And, and like, cost plus what? cost plus what is the question not which method that's one question but it's not all of the answer anyway so the cost the cost plus method the cost plus method begins with the costs incurred by the supplier of the property or services in a controlled transaction or property transferred or services provided to an associated purchaser an appropriate cost plus markup is then added to this cost to make an appropriate profit in light of the functions performed and the market conditions. What is arrived at after adding the cost plus markup to the above costs may be regarded as the arm's length price. So we work out how much it's costing me to do the thing and then we add on a relevant markup and that's what I should charge. Yeah, and I mean, that has the benefit of simplicity, I suppose. Yes. Um, it's also in that in that quote that I just read out, you'll be glad to see the double appropriateness test in that middle sentence. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Yeah. You know, I could see your eyes glaze over as I said it. Um, I was trying not to look vaguely irritated by it. So glazed over is probably good. <laughs> so this is I mean, just this, this set of guidelines is one of the, the worst examples of the thing that, that we harp on about all the time, isn't it, of drafting by committee with people from all different countries that don't speak the same language and they try and arrive at some unified text. Yes, and of course the guidelines is not really the right place for it to be anyway, but there we go. That's a conversation for another day. Exactly, but that sentence that we just talked about, you can see in the drafting room, somebody said, don't forget to say it's an appropriate markup, and then somebody else has said, oh, but the profit's got to be appropriate as well, don't forget that. And it doesn't actually add anything. It's, it's all no. elsewhere, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so cost plus, generally we use for... Part finished goods, provision of services, things like facility agreements. And it's interesting that you should mention part finished goods because I have got an example, which I'm not going to try and pretend that I've just made up. It comes from the um, guidelines, but I've got an example involving clock parts. So. Wow. A is a domestic manufacturer of timing mechanisms for mass marketed clocks. Right, and okay. This, pro- this product is sold to its foreign subsidiary B. A earns a 5% gross profit markup for that manufacturing operation. X, Y, and Z are independent domestic manufacturers of timing mechanisms for mass marketed watches, and they sell to independent foreign purchasers. When they sell to those purchasers, they earn a gross profit markup for that this those similar manufacturing operations of between three to five percent. Um, a accounts for its its expenses as operating expenses, 
and those costs are therefore not reflected in the cost of goods sold. The gross profit markups of X, Y, and Z, who are the independents, do reflect those costs as part of the goods sold. And therefore, the gross profit markups of the independents have to be adjusted to provide accounting consistency. That's okay. the example. I'm not sure that's helped me much. I don't know why that why they're picking on the Swiss. Or on clockmakers. Clockmakers are an innocent bunch. Clearly Swiss clockmakers that they're having a go at. Um, <laughs> I, I yeah, I, I don't. I'm not entirely sure that helps. But this is what we have to deal with, people. Uh, so this is we we do this so you don't have to read sentences like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm sort of wishing I'd never read that now. Oh, well, never mind. I'm leaving it in because I got a joke about Swiss clockmakers in. So it's time, It just feels like it's time none of us are getting back, though, doesn't it, having read that? Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry so about let's that, move on. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I, we, we all understood it until you started on about the clocks. Um, that's cost plus. Well, I'm pleased I've made things worse. <laughs> <laughs> so many times. So the transactional net margin method, which is the first of the uh, TPMs, transactional profit methods. Um, do we understand what really, or does anybody really understand, apart from people with giant brains in the chateau, wherever it is, it's headquarters of the OECD, um, really what the, what the material difference the category differences between a traditional transaction method and a transactional profit method are um, Harriet. I have to say that I find any sort of principled theoretical distinction difficult to identify and having looked at the introduction to the the, the transfer pricing guidelines the introduction to the section on um transactional profit methods and tr traditional transactional methods i have to say i'm not completely convinced that by the time they got to writing those bits anyone involved was particularly clear on the sort of principled distinction between them but i'm maybe being a little unfair so i think we can say that they're that they're qualitatively different that they feel more woolly yes uh, yes i think that's probably fair and they're more flexible, I think. I mean, when I've seen um, transfer pricing studies done, they always seem to land on the net margin method after explaining right. why they can't compare anything to anything like easily measurable. Yeah. Um, I think that that might partly be because there's no easy comparable. Yeah. So I, I think it, it adds more flexibility and, it's, and, it, and it creates a space where you can't, because the, the first three are so grounded in, you need to go and find something to look at. If there is no comparable, then there needs to be a flexible option which has a, a given standard of rigor yeah. uh, rather than just make it up, right? It, exactly. And so really, I think maybe the first two, so the um, traditional methods, they are helpful where you do have an obvious comparable. So they don't meet necessarily as readily the criteria of, well, there's nothing here for us to look at, really. Yeah. So Whereas there are 
uh, so what do we do the um ttms sorry tpms do do that a little bit more yeah so there are companies aren't there all, all the big accountants and and some others um transfer pricing specialist firms that have huge databases don't they yes that they can just basically plug a transaction into and it'll like <laughs> i imagine a big room where things were around including like tapes and stuff and then and then and then there's a, like a whizzing noise and a plop and a card pops out with 10 percent written on it <laughs> you're thinking about the 70s here or maybe the very early 80s yeah um like that film war games anyway um right so the transactional net margin method which is the first of the uh, of the less traditional methods uh shall we read out did you want me to read out the quote and then you can make sense of it you 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 do the quote and then we'll see if we can make any sense of it. So the transactional net margin method examines the net profit relative to an appropriate base, e.g. costs, sales, assets, that a taxpayer realises from a controlled transaction. Thus, a TNM operates in a way similar to the cost plus or resale price methods, this means in particular that the net profit indicator of the taxpayer from the controlled transaction should ideally be established by reference to the net profit indicator that the same taxpayer earns in uncontrolled transactions. If this is not possible, then the net margin that would have been earned in comparable transactions by an independent enterprise may serve as a guide. And as ever, the catch-all sentence a functional analysis is required. So what, what, what do we think a functional analysis means in this context? I think it means that you have to analyse what you're doing, right? I kind of, that was one of those unusual questions I asked where I didn't actually have a view <laughs> on what the answer might be. I know, I, know, I know I've always got an answer, but I don't think I do for that one. I think it just, is it not just a reference, is it just not one of those committee drafting style things where they just say the same thing over and over again to make sure you've understood it? You do have, you to, you have searching... to do a functional analysis. Am I searching for meaning where really there's no additional meaning? Aren't we all? <laughs> oh, philosophical. Um, so I, I think it just point... means, it's like, it's like saying for the avoidance of doubt, it just means that you've got to do your functional analysis before you start. It's included in several of the other quotes. I just think it means you have to make sure you do a proper functional analysis. That's what I read it as anyway. Fair enough. So <clears throat> that's uh, so what's what, what's all this appropriate base stuff about? You need to work out the net profit relative to an appropriate base. What's an appropriate base, Harriet? So I don't know, Graham. You tell me. <laughs> so I think what it means is that you look at instead of it, it, it references to the retail price method, the retail resale price method and cost plus, right? Yeah. So I think that to use cost plus as an example, instead of looking at costs as your base and then building a margin on top of that, you look at some other base, whether it's what assets are deployed, and and then in in parallel to the resale price method, you could look at the sales that are made. You look at the assets, you look at the, it says look at the costs uh, as an alternative. But from that, instead of working out the gross margin, you work out the net profit relative to the base that you have selected. So you could, 
um, somebody said, well, could you could you look at the number of employees used and work out what net profit you would expect to make when you deploy that number of employees at something? The answer to that must be no in most circumstances, I would have thought. Well, no, you can't work it out or no, it's not appropriate. No, I mean, I think maybe you could work it out, but that seems quite an artificial um, way to do it in most circumstances. In most circumstances, it would be. But as an example of a base, which is sort yes. of non-traditional yeah, I mean, and takes you that. away from just saying, well, how much did it cost me? You could look at the yes. assets that you've deployed or you could look at the, the capital investment that's got you there. I mean, you could find because it just says an appropriate base. It doesn't tell you what. Uh, though I'm guessing in, in the 658 pages, there's something. But what it means is that you move away from just looking at the costs and calculating the gross margin or the sales and removing a gross margin. You look for a different base. Exactly. And as you've already said, this offers flexibility and so is likely to be useful in sort of non, non-standard situations. Yeah. So, um, and it's, really important because it it's the oh is it the i think it's the only one that tells you by preference to look at your internal comparables not to look at external comparables exactly and um to come back to your point looking at paragraph 2.105 of the transfer pricing guidelines other denominators where independent may exist include floor area of retail points, weight of products transported, number of employees. See? See? Yeah, but it does go on to say, while there is no reason to rule out the use of such bases, where they provide a reasonable indication of the value added by the tested party to the controlled transaction, they should only be used where it is possible to obtain reliable, comparable information to support the application of the method with such a net profit indicator. Yeah. So as, so, I, as I say, I, I think it's going to be an unusual situation where you stray that far. Yeah, correct. But that's what the word appropriate in appropriate base is doing. It's telling you don't take the mickey with whatever that's a very carefully chosen word there don't take the mickey with uh with just coming up with random things that suit you it has to hang together yes yeah but again it does ground it in reality and it does provide this method of recognizing that different businesses might more accurately reflect what's going on by using different methods which is a good thing really apart notwithstanding the 600 and 58 pages. Yeah. So <clears throat> this method is good where you've got no external comparables. Um, where and, and it's good because it's a one-sided method. It's very, very unlikely that you're going to have easy access to somebody else's net profit related to the size of their shop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, so that that really helps. You can do it without reference to, to anybody else. Um, and there are two other bullet points that I have written down that I've, I've taken from the, from the guidelines. One says it eliminates differences in gross margins and actual outcomes, brackets net profit, driven by specific considerations. So it's, it, there's many a slip between net and gross. I think that's what that's saying, isn't there? Um, and, <laughs> what a lovely way to put it. I'm, <laughs> that. I'm nicking that. <laughs> um, and, but conversely, um, factual impacts on acceptable net margins can increase a lack of accuracy. So with what 
what the OECD gives with one hand, it takes with the other. <clears throat> uh, well, of course. <laughs> yeah. So that's, um, I think we got through that quite painlessly, Harriet. I'm really glad that you found that reference to a number of employees in the... Um, in the guidelines that and I'm, I'm glad that they said I'm glad that they said that yeah but it might not work very well yeah so, honors satisfied on all sides <laughs> exactly uh, none of us look look foolish which I was particularly worried about um so the final method would you like to take it from the top it is the transactional profit split method and we're getting more words so you, you get you, you I'm guessing it's going to be less precise and yeah. the TPSM seeks to eliminate the effect on profits of special conditions made or imposed by a controlled transaction by determining the division of profits that independent enterprises would have expected to realise from engaging in the transaction. If anybody is following at home with the book next to them, highly unlikely, but if they are, right, I've edited some bits out of that quote to make it snappy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a summary quote rather than a complete yeah. quote. Yeah, on the, on the screen, it's got three dots in it. Um, so I think what they're driving at there is basically that if you have um, a transaction where more than one person is involved, you work out how much everybody would expect to get out of the, the total price, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's particularly useful. Integrated groups, joint ventures. Um, I, I would find it less useful if I was if you were selling widgets um, and I was a supplier. I think we could get more accurate than that. But I suppose you could yes. at a push go with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. In my experience, this is not the usually the most appropriate method to select okay so it would be special cases um, maybe broader than that one thing that i would note here and that i think is noted in the guidelines sorry the guide <laughs> yeah, in the guidelines is that you can end up with an asymmetric result under this method an asymmetric result say you an what's asymmetric an asymmetric result let's 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 go in let, let's look at that um it's where you get an asymmetrical uh, splits of profits and losses for example where the parties apply different considerations depending on the results of the transaction and they can be arm's length but the oecd doesn't really like them they say they may be appropriate but must be properly documented so, oh so so you get two parties the same transaction disagreeing about what the profit share should be essentially Exactly. And I don't love that outcome. I don't know why. It seems wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> that somebody can say, the price I should have received is 20%, and the guy in another country can say, no, you should have had 30%, but it has literally no impact on anything. And we're connected. No, 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 no. That doesn't feel, that doesn't feel right. But I suppose if you've got independent practitioners doing different studies or studies at the same time using the same method, you could end up with that, I suppose. Yeah, you could. Um, and it, it, yeah, it's a possibility and it's not the end of the world is what the OECD is saying. But I think what they're also saying is you shouldn't expect to see it that much. Okay. So, well, this is great, Harriet. We've got through the five 
the five methods. Haven't been any major breakages. Nobody's, in, nobody's been hospitalized. Um, and we've managed it. So what do you do now? Now that you've done this, you've applied these, these, one of these five methods, what do you do? Is there some sort of formalized documentation process? How, how does that work? Yes, yes, there is. We want everything documented. Good. So who gets paid for that? Do we get paid for that? Um, I don't generally get paid for that, but then I don't have to do it. So that's always helpful. <laughs> yeah. You get paid for telling people what they need to do. So yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't then have to do it. That, that's exactly let's, right. Let's tell them what they need to do for the love of it, of the podcast. Let's, uh, let's go through that. So it's okay. a three-tiered approach, right? Yes. Yes, it is. It is a three-tiered approach. Um, now, what I should say is in, in the transfer pricing guidelines, there's a whole section explaining, it's called it's section B of this part of the guidelines, explaining the principles that you're aiming to achieve. Um, and that goes on for, that goes on for quite a few pages. Um, yeah, and that sets out the objectives of the documentation requirements. So just to start there, there are, there are three objectives, three tier system, three objectives. And the three objectives are to ensure taxpayers give appropriate consideration to transfer pricing requirements in establishing prices and other conditions for transactions between associated enterprise and in reporting the income derived from such transactions. To provide tax administrations with the information necessary to conduct an informed transfer pricing risk assessment and to provide tax administrations with useful information to employ in conducting an appropriately thorough audit of the transfer pricing practices of entities subject to tax in their jurisdiction, although it may be necessary to supplement the documentation with additional information as the audit progresses. So that's really what this documentation process is aimed at. And in, in, in the way that it's often helpful to go from the general to the specific, we're starting from an overview of what it is that the OECD says you should be looking to achieve. And what I would say is in terms of doing this exercise, you do want to make sure that you have the documentation because if you don't, it's only going to be problematic. You know, right. if you, you, you can't hide. If you, if you do hide, if you're insufficiently documented, a tax authority is only ever really going to assume and work on the basis of the worst case scenario. Yeah. In my opinion. So, so get ready. If you're yes. a big multinational enterprise that's selling stuff within its group, and that also happens itself. to be listening to this podcast, which seems relatively unlikely, but who knows? I suspect that there are some, um, <laughs> mainly because I, I I order them to listen to it. <laughs> so, you the three tiered approach to the actual documentation, which implements the three principles that Harriet talked about, is is that you you take a, a again a helicopter reducing to specifics you start off with a thing called the master file which provides an overview of the business of the multinational enterprise and contains very high level information it should include lists of important agreements intangibles and uh, transactions and it should sort of be the, the the overview of the whole thing and then underneath that you have what's called a local file for each of the countries in question now harriet is that supposed to be kept in the local jurisdiction or is it, is it, does it just have to exist? Um, I think it just has to exist, but I feel like that's a trick question and I've maybe got that now, wrong. I don't know the answer to that and I, and I was thinking about it today. I think you probably should keep it in your local jurisdiction just in case the revenue turn up and ask. 
it should certainly be available in that jurisdiction. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. So it would need to be in the power and control, though most of this is presumably going to be digital information now. Yeah. So if somebody can email a, it to you. On, on a server in France and your local jurisdiction is Brazil, that shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Um, see, I'm very old. I still think in, in terms of lever arch files. Anyway. So uh, the local file provides more detail. Uh, it's required for each country. It supplements the master file and helps meet the objective of reassuring the authorities the transfer pricing obligations are fulfilled. It should include transfer pricing studies and financial information about the, the individual country. And I think it's, I suppose it's also important to understand that that creation of that local file sort of ring fences the stuff that's relevant to each country you it, an initial review the authorities in italy would not necessarily have a right to see stuff about what's happening in brazil which would be contained in the master file right yes i mean that's a very interesting point and obviously one would need to know what treaty provisions applied as between them be those multilaterals or whatever um multilaterals or bilaterals that being said that being said, yes, I think initially in, in, in an audit, in an inquiry, you might well be justified in saying, here's the local file. But if you want to do that, you should make sure that the master file isn't in the power, possession or control of the individual jurisdictions with the local yeah. files. But it's just an interesting thought. <clears throat> and then the, the third level is what's called the country by country report, which is... Uh, country by country reporting is a is a, a global system isn't it by which multinationals report what they've earned in individual jurisdictions yeah so what the what what the guidelines say about this is that it requires aggregate tax jurisdiction wide information relating to the global allocation of the income the taxes paid and certain indicators of the location of economic activity among tax jurisdictions in which the mne group operates it also requires a listing of all the constituent entities for which financial information is reported, including tax jurisdiction of incorporation where different from residents, as well as the nature of the main business activities carried out by that constituent entity. And the reason they want that is that it's helpful for high level risk assessment in relation to transfer pricing. Um, it's also used uh, in evaluating BEPS related risks and where appropriate for economic and statistical analysis by uh, tax administrations. Nice. So um, is that the same thing as CBC reporting that, that everybody does so much of nowadays? Or does no, it sit alongside it? It sits. So look, if, if you need to do country by country reporting, which even you need to have is it 750 million something isn't it is it euros or is it dollars anyway I think it might be dollars you need to have yes, you need to have group turnover of 750 million so it's not going to impact everybody but yes um it, this is separate this is country by country reporting under that tp heading yeah okay so um the final step is to just for us to very quickly talk about uh, transfer pricing studies, which are the gold standard method of working out the arm's length price, aren't they? You pay a large and very expensive accountancy firm to tell you 
um, what you should charge. Yes. And that, and these that's are the done, best shield from an investigation, right? It is, yes. And these are done by men and women sitting in a room who haven't been allowed out for about 20 years and have only ever done transfer pricing. It's a highly specialised area. Yeah, which I'm very glad I do not do. Um, I bet it'd be interesting once you got going, a bit like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, they're very admirable. Oh, yeah, not, it's not a criticism, but it's just not for me. Uh, TP studies are... Uh, and we really hope none of them are listening to this because they will no, be. I'm fine. I, I really hope nobody who knows more than we do is listening to this. <laughs> because the gaps in what we know will be, will be exposed. It's so technical and we have really tried to take a very high level approach. This is exactly. designed to be an introduction. Uh, if we got anything wrong... Uh, we foolishly handed out our email address at the very start of the uh, the episode, so we are very sorry to our to our very very specialised TP practitioner uh, colleagues for murdering their subject. But if we have got something wrong, do email us and remember it was all Graham's fault. Yes, of course it was. So um, TP studies are very expensive because they are very specialised, but they are the gold standard defence against. Uh, an investigation by the authorities about a specific pricing arrangement. So, I think we got there, Harriet. Uh, I think we've, we've reached the reached the reached the end of what we can usefully give an introduction to transfer pricing. Or possibly the limits of our knowledge. No. <laughs> um, so we we really hope that it made sense. It is a very difficult uh, topic. And very some very complex words for what sh what at first look does appear to be very simple, but the problem with very simple things is they're very difficult to actually do um, because they like appear so simple. Stands. Yeah, well, hand, always never been able to do handstands. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for listening. We hope it was okay, and uh, of course. This is just a conversation about people. No, not about people, about tax by people who uh, should know more about transfer pricing than they do when they tackle an hour's lecture on it. Uh, we, hope it we, we hope there's not too many errors. So uh, we will see you all soon. And please remember to take relevant advice in all the relevant jurisdictions. And get your gold standard transfer pricing report. Yeah. Um, and speak soon. Goodbye. <laughs>